Welcome to the C21 podcast. We hope you're safe and well wherever you are. Today we're joined by Jorge Franzini, Director of Content and Development at US-based factual streamer CuriosityStream, DC Cassidy, founder of Diamond Entertainment, which claims to be the first black-led animation company in Hollywood, and Bernard Levin, Creative Director of Yellowbird UK. My name's David Jenkinson. Thanks for listening. Jorge Franzini, Director of Content and Development at CuriosityStream, has been managing the US factual streamer's push into more original content. Without the tyranny of a linear schedule to worry about, the streamer is well-placed to cope with the few delays it's had and is pushing further into a round of commissioning. If you're pitching projects to them in the coming weeks, he gave Clive Whittingham some extensive tips on topics, rights, budgets and co-production opportunities in his deep dive interview. We are a fairly young company. We, we launched in uh, March of 2015, so, so we're slightly over five years old now. And CuriosityStream is really the brainchild of uh, legendary media visionary John Hendricks, who really rightly saw streaming as kind of the next revolution in content delivery. So essentially, we, we saw kind of a gap in the market when it comes to factual, and uh, we decided to jump right in. And, and honestly, I'm, I'm so ecstatic to say that we continue to grow month over month. Uh, we have our, our core streaming service, but also have launched uh, pay TV channels uh, in various places throughout the world. And, and really what CuriosityStream is, is trying to do is become the home of all factual programming. It's really that easy. Um, we do have our, our traditional buckets of science, technology, history, wildlife, and culture, but we've really expanded in the last uh, year or so to also do adventure and travel, food, uh, some crime, and, and really just try to broaden uh, all the genres within CuriosityStream. A mixture of feature docs and series and shorts. How does it? How does it sort of divide up? Absolutely. You know, that's kind of the lovely thing about being a streamer is that uh, it really allows us to kind of break the rules of traditional broadcasting, meaning that we can do things just as you mentioned, like have uh, what we like to call. We don't like to call it short form. We, we more say mid form. I think for us, you know, nine minutes plus is, is kind of uh, where we want to be on on this mid form programming. Uh, and I always say, let the content dictate the length, really. Uh, let the visuals and the story tell you how long something needs to be. So we have uh, a few strands with, with one-off of these mid-forms. We do have mid-form series as well. And as you mentioned, we have you know traditional one-offs and series, as well as feature docs that are starting to come into the service as well. And is that a mixture of acquisitions and original commissions? And, and what's the levels of both in your strategy? Absolutely. So, so, you know, when you launch something like CuriosityStream or, or any SVOD or network, uh, the first thing you want to do is build a, a great library, right? So when CuriosityStream first launched, uh, a lot of our library was acquisitions, but even then we were still producing exclusive and original programming. Now the goal, as, as, we're, getting old, as we're getting a little bit older and we're growing, is to start doing less and less acquisitions and to do more and more original exclusive content. Uh, you know, we already have a library of over 3,000 titles. Um, so, of course, we'll refresh and we'll keep growing the library uh, and, and through acquisitions. And, and really, the lovely thing is you got to remember, CuriosityStream is a, a global, it's an international service. So even some of these acquisitions, for a lot of our audience, are, are first-time runs or premiering in, in, in their country. So, so that's kind of where we are with the acquisitions. We'll continue to do them, we'll refresh, we'll continue to grow as we expand into new roles. But the idea is let's move more and more into exclusive originals, uh, either through in-house commissions or co-productions. 
So as we started the year uh, six months ago, coming into 2020, um, you've you've launched, like you say, in 2015, you've expanded around the world into different countries and you're, you're looking to get into more originals and fewer acquisitions. Was that the the strategy and the aim for 2020 as you came into this year before all of this happened? How did you how did you see it going? What was the plan? Absolutely. I mean, this actually, you know, even last year, uh, you really saw us start expanding uh, the, the, the factual programming that we have into, as I mentioned, food and travel. And, and really, we have been uh, concentrating on growing the pay TV channels. Uh, you know, we've been launching, uh, it feels like almost every month, although it's not quite that. So, so our, our strategy was, let's continue this great growth that we have, and let's continue to get these originals and exclusives coming. And then, of course, you know, the lovely COVID curveball came. Uh, but, but luckily, it hasn't affected what we're trying to do or our plans too much. So, so we've been lucky in that respect. How, how has it changed things? We've, uh, we've heard that it might actually, you know, if you're a streamer, you're probably quite well positioned to cope because everybody's at home looking for, for content. Is, is that too simplistic? How, how have you seen it affecting your business? I don't think that that's too simplistic. I mean, look, one of the things that we really do pride ourselves in is, is top-notch, entertaining, really uh, inspiring uh, programming. And, and with, for example, with children that all of a sudden had to go home and, and couldn't go to school, uh, I think we became a, a terrific resource for parents and kids and teachers alike uh, with this great programming. So, so we did see that. And, and in fact, we, we even you know, slashed all of our prices to kind of accommodate people and, and, and have this beautiful safe space where they can watch some of these great things. So, so in that respect, uh, it, it, you know, in that respect, we've seen that we've been a, a good resource for, for folks. How has it affected the push into originals? Because obviously all production, on the vast majority of productions had to go on hold. So have you guys lost or delayed stuff that you expected to have by now? And, and how does, how have you coped and, and dealt with that? Yeah, no, I mean, I got to be frankly honest with you. Uh, we, we did have very good program planning. So a number of our really big originals and series that we're going to debut uh, this year, uh, right now in these quarters and in the upcoming quarters are actually all still moving forward. Uh, you know, we've just been uh, just good through our strategy that, that a lot of things were in post. Uh, so that's terrific. Some things in production, yes, if production needs to stop for a few months, that's okay, but that doesn't mean your post-production teams can't be doing the CGI and doing other things to keep the productions moving forward. So in that respect, again, we've, we've been very lucky in that uh, we haven't been too negatively affected at all, in, in fact. Um, we have a, a very good internal uh, team that does a lot of uh, the writing and post-producing here, and that's all been moving forward. Uh, we've had to, like everybody else, adjust by getting, you know, edit bays uh, remotely and, 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 you know, sending drives and things of that, that nature. But really, those don't delay you quite that much. And, and then we've tried to find opportunistic ways to, to move, keep productions moving forward. So I'll, let me give you kind of two quick examples of that. One is, is a wonderful kind of uh, mid-form program that we have coming up for our Bright Now strand called A Night at the Aquarium where this great aquarium in California has had to shutter its doors, unfortunately, because of the COVID crisis. But what that allowed was essentially an entire facility open for a crew of, of, of small, you know, three-person crew that can socially distance and actually do this in a very safe manner to go out and, and, and keep filming. Um, another wonderful thing we have coming that I, I don't want to get too much into, but it's a great uh, natural history mid-form series uh, where we essentially tap into 
a great, great up and coming talent that we really, really love and have worked with in the past that is all spread out throughout the world. And, and, and in natural history with crews of three, as opposed to a, a crew of, you know, 40, 50 people, they've been able to, to be out there and, and even supplemented with some of the stuff that they've shot in their, in their own uh, hometowns to really build a, a great series. So I think that there's always ways to keep moving forward. I mean, if anything, what this pandemic has allowed is, is to really think outside the box, to get out of your comfort zone and get creative about how you, how you think about productions. If I'm coming to, uh, to pitch you as a producer at the moment, as best you can, can you sum up what you're, what you're looking for and what cuts through for Curiosity Stream at the moment? Yeah, look, it, it hasn't changed. As I said earlier, we're still after the same things. Uh, we, we're after all factual, you know, science and history do really well for us, technology, wildlife, those things do really well for us as well. But those aren't the only things. You know, again, this goes to, to that whole core of being a streamer, we do things a little bit different. You know, we don't have, like the broadcasters, a, a, a kind of a schedule that we need to fill out. So it's not like we're after one particular thing. We think a great idea is a great idea. Uh, we always encourage uh, producers and distributors to really poke around the site and see what it is that we have. Because when I'm asked, what are you guys missing? Well, with over 3,000 titles, it's kind of hard to say what we're missing. You might have uh, a new perspective on something uh, that we may already have. Uh, so, for example, we're always looking for what's new. So maybe it's new camera techniques and new technology that are telling stories that we may already have. Maybe it's a new perspective on a story. Maybe it's a whole new story that we don't have. So that's really what I ask people to do sometimes, particularly if we haven't worked with you before and you're trying to kind of figure out what it is that we're after. It's go on the site and, and look through, you know, I know with 3,000 titles, it's, it's a lot, but go through what we have and, and see if yours maybe, uh, if it's a, a similar story, how it differs from the one we have. The other thing I would say is, as you touched on earlier, is let's not just think about one-offs in, in, in traditional series. Let's look at this mid-form kind of format and see what works. Uh, a lot of times these become kind of developmental playgrounds. If you have a phenomenal story, a 10-parter that you really want to get off the ground, but, but uh, maybe shooting doesn't allow it, maybe the budget don't allow it, well, could those work as a, a, a you know, a three by 11, a one by 11 or, or, or more? as a way to help you kind of get to a bigger sort of a series. We, we're always open to those sorts of pitches. We encourage them. So, you know, what I would tell producers is to think outside the box when they think about, when they think of Curiosity Stream. And are you, uh, are your originals uh, by and large full commissions and, and for the whole world, or can you come in as a co-production partner? Uh, what different ways are there to, yeah. to get you guys involved? Yeah, so, so you look, we, we've been doing co-productions from the very get-go. I think we have a, a, a really good reputation of being easy to work with, uh, to being editorially sound and, and, and being able to, to be flexible when it comes to territories and, the, and those sort of things. So, so co-productions are definitely on the table. It's not all commissions. Uh, I would say that our exclusives and originals come from three, three different ways. One is the full commissions, as you mentioned. Uh, two is our in-house originals team that's working on developing new projects. Uh, and three is co-productions. So uh, ideally, I think, you know, uh, as I mentioned, we're flexible, but on a baseline level, you know, we look for, for worldwide non-exclusive SVOD, uh, sometimes exclusive in the U.S., depending on our contributions. Again, we, we really don't try to beat up filmmakers and distributors. So that, that's on a base level. But as I mentioned, we have launched a lot of pay TV channels. So, so if we can get either some of the pay TV territories that we have already uh, as a curiosity stream channel 
as a curiosity channel or, or maybe even worldwide pay TV, non-exclusive with geo blocking uh, as per our partners, that will also work. But again, that's on a level of contributions and, and what partners are available and kind of the overarching goal of the production. But, but, you know, we are flexible to all of these things. Just because we can't get one territory doesn't mean we wouldn't do something. I mean, that's how we've been doing, you know, co-productions from the beginning. We can geo-block what our partners have, and we're okay with that. How do your budgets stack up against, say, a Discovery Cable Net or, or, or something like that? And what's the advantage of people coming to work with you as opposed to a traditional channel? Well, in terms of budgets, you know, not to get too into it, all I can say is that that we have been growing year over year, which means that our budgets have been growing year over year. So we're starting to get to a place where we're really, really competitive. I think editorially, we've always been been extremely competitive. I think when you go on the site, you'll see uh, films from the world's best. I mean, honestly, best producers, filmmakers, and distributors. So so even with our, our particularly very early limitations with the budget, we've always been able to put forth a grade A service. Uh, and now as the budgets keep growing and growing, you know, the sky's the limit. We punch way above our weight class, but we are still a smaller service in terms of people. So, so you can reach us directly. We can chat with you. You know, when we work with, with co-pro partners and things of that nature, we don't look at it as, oh, great, here's a great piece of content and here's one EP that can deal with it and let them go. No, no, to us, it's really meaningful because it, it is things that we like to push and bring to our audiences. So, you, you know, the lines of communication for one, uh, a really editorially sound team, I think. Uh, we really don't try to, to dumb it down for our audiences. We know our audiences really love to dive deep into the editorial content. So those are kind of the things that we bring to the table, you know, flexibility and ways to, to work together. We're not extremely rigid. Uh, we don't sometimes beat up, uh, we never beat up production companies, as I said, and distributors, but even on, on silly things like, you know, having a list of, of deliverables that are, you know, five pages long. We don't do that. We're really easy to work with. What do you need in the first instance? If, if it's a producer you haven't worked with before and they've got yeah. an idea, what do, what do they need to send you as a starting point? Look, you know, of course, big treatments and sizzles with trailers are phenomenal if you have them bring them if you're going to be doing them just for curiosity stream i would tell you stop and don't don't spend hours and money doing things when you could give us a write-up and we can tell right away whether or not it will work for us you know a great idea is a great idea it'll come through on paper now if it's somebody we haven't worked with before and, and we don't know very well what i would say is you don't even need to have a, a, a big trailer for the project if you have it phenomenal but really what would help is some some examples of past work just so we can kind of understand uh the level of production and kind of what your ambitions are and what your visions are on, on other projects that'll help us that'll help us a lot in, in really looking through it so so i would say at a bare minimum if we haven't worked together you know it's a couple of paragraphs on the story and the access that you have and kind of what you envision and then a, a trailer or, or links to previous works jorge franzini Writer-producer DC Cassidy is founder of Diamond Entertainment, which claims to be the first black-led animation company in Hollywood. As a fledgling animation development and production company, Diamond is working on getting its original IP featuring diverse characters off the ground. He told Nico Franks about the company's origins and gives his take on how the US animation industry has responded to the recent Black Lives Matter protests. I was in the military, the US Army. Um, right after I went to missionary school, I went to missionary school in the Dominican Republic. While I was in missionary school, 
um, I, um, and it was kind of non-denominational, not any one specific denomination or, or, or affiliation. And we went to Peru and we actually stayed for a month in the Amazon jungle. And, um, you know, it was a clean drinking water project. We were helping people. Um, uh, we were kind of an advanced team. We were doing surveys to see who had clean drinking water and, and who, who would need, be in the greatest need. And then from there, people would come after us and they would drill wells and then kind of use solar power to, to, to help uh, kind of fuel this whole process. And I remember when I was in Peru and I really wanted to go to Machu Picchu, I had heard about it. I'd seen the movie Motorcycle Diaries. Um, this was right around the time that that had come out. And there's that time point where uh, Ernesto, um, who later on I would realize, you know, as a kid, I didn't even realize, you know, the connection between Motorcycle Diaries and Che Guevara. But Ernesto looks at Peru and he says the Incans were the most uh, advanced civilization in um, surgery and mathematics and astronomy. And uh, how could a culture that created this and the movie that pans across uh, Machu Picchu be, have been taken over by a, a culture that created this and then it pans, it cuts to a shot of Lima. And, uh, and not so much a denigration of Lima, but I think more of just showing how beautiful the culture, the Inca culture was. And so after I had had a chance to work on a tech startup um, that didn't take off, um, I went to Machu Picchu on not even a soul-seeking journey, but just kind of a chance to reflect and rest. Uh, it ended up being the most spiritual journey of my life, and not spiritual in a religious sense, um, but just in terms of peace. And uh, just seeing, doing the 60-mile South Conte trek from Cusco to Machu Picchu, meeting people along the way who were Quechua, who were direct descendants of the Incas, um, you know, some would argue who were virtually, you know, basically the same lineage as Incas, and had that trip to finally get a chance to go to Machu Picchu. And I remember along the way to Machu Picchu, I met this 13-year-old boy who was traveling with his family. And he was just running around. He was touching everything. He was so enthusiastic with what he was, what he was doing in the world he was living in. And I remember saying to his parents, like, why is he not in school right now? <laughs> you know, this is early May. And they said, we took him out of school for a year and we're traveling to the sites of the seven wonders of the world and we're spending a month or two in each, in each of kind of the countries where some of these wonders are located. Great Wall of China, uh, Taj Mahal in India, you know, Peru, they're spending a month or two in. And it was so fascinating. He was at that perfect age where he was too, um, he was too, uh, was, wasn't too young to appreciate hanging with his, 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 his parents, et cetera. You know, the shot of a four-year-old Disney World, like, hey, mom, that I don't even remember that, right? And then uh, on the same hand, you see people who are, um, uh, you see people on the other hand who were too old, where they don't really, uh, they're kind of too cool to hang out with their parents. And so this kid was really at that perfect age where he, um, he really appreciated everything he did. At the same time, my sister-in-law, who um, was white, um, she, you know, she lamented to me, this is pre-Into the Spider-Verse, this is pre a couple more things recently that have really reflected more cultural values. But at the time, she said to me, you know, there's really nothing that reflects, um, there's really nothing that reflects uh, my kids on screen. And as uh, the mother of two young mixed race kids, you know, her heart was broken that her kids didn't get a chance that she did um, growing up as a, a young white girl to see herself reflected on screen. So I kind of merged those two ideas and I came up with this concept where two, these two kids, two mixed race twins would uh, travel back in time, fantastically, obviously, and uh, back to when the Incas were still prominent. 
And it's something that I hadn't felt, I'd felt that hadn't really been explored in media before you. You know, you have the Road del Dorado, kind of this disney version of kind of some ancient, uh, you know, uh, ancient Latin America. Um, you have uh, Apocalypto, you know, Mel Gibson's uh, uh, obviously very dark, very brutal take, um, you know, uh, on, on kind of those times, those periods. Um, and nothing had really done with the Incas. No one had really told the story when the Incas were still prominent. And that was really fascinating to me. I really wa- originally wanted to do a video game. Um, but I didn't have $200 million to do a triple A video game. I didn't even have $10 million to do an indie video game. And, um, and so, uh, I said, you know what, I, I'll write a book. And if I write a book that's successful, maybe someone will give me $10 million to make you know, an indie video game with this concept. And the idea was kind of like Zelda esque where instead of, um, dungeon levels, like, you know, the water temple or the temple of time in you know, Zelda Ocarina time, uh, instead of those kind of temple dungeon levels, every dungeon level would be a different ancient American civilization, Aztecs, Incans, Mayans. And, um, and, you know, our protagonists would travel, you know, across and have an adventure in each of those different worlds. Still, by the way, I think it would be an amazing video game. And so I ended up writing um, 70,000 world word middle grade novel. And uh, as one does, uh, you, uh, especially coming from a technology background, it said, hey, you know, getting uh, published and agents and managers is all a very difficult process. Um, you know, it kind of be interesting to just kind of try to distribute this ourselves, put up a website, start accepting donations. Um, and um, fun fact, uh, little unbeknownst fact, actually, I had a friend who was at Reddit. And this person, this is right when Reddit was launching their ads. And this is a story that I haven't told, really haven't told the public anywhere. And right when Reddit was launching their ads and um, they said, hey, we have like, uh, we have kind of like these, these sponsored spaces and group where, where, where we're running ads to fill ad inventory that had non-purchased ad inventory basically. And so I forgot about it. And they, you know, they posted a link to, to, to our website for Leo and Helen. This is the name of it, the two, the two time traveling kids. And I forgot about it. I went back to work. About four months later, um, something happened and triggered it. And I went and looked at the website for some reason. And I realized there had been millions of page views. And I remember thinking, well, this is strange. Why do we have millions of page views? The website, there's $30,000 in donations. <laughs> and you're like, what? where is this coming from? And then I realized that the Reddit had been running our ad nonstop for about four or five months and millions and millions of people had paid views, uh, much the ire of some Redditors, by the way, who were A, wondering how we had so much money to spend on ads, <laughs> and B, uh, and, the, and the answer was we, we, had, we were spending zero on it, and, and also B, just the idea that they're seeing the same ad over and over again, uh, although it wouldn't surprise you that there was also um, a ton of negative comments uh, due to the, the, the racial makeup of our protagonist and the way they are described. Um, and so, but one of the positive things it did bring was I got an email from um, someone who was uh, relatively high up at Marvel. Um, and uh, the email said, hey, I'm the executive producer at, and listed three of uh, the biggest Marvel films and obviously subsequently three of the biggest films of all time. And he reached out and said, hey, uh, my wife is a USA Today best-selling published author. I love what you guys are doing, trying to do this book yourselves. Um, you know, my wife self-publishes to, to great success. Um, I've always wanted to make a movie about 
uh, a family-friendly film about a uh, family really exploring Machu Picchu. And, you know, I would love to take a look at your book, Manuscript, and um, think about turning it into a feature film. So I f- flew out to L.A. Uh, I go on to a lot of a major studio. And, of course, I'm looking at the billboards. I'm looking at the movie, you know, the trailers and, and everything. And it's like, hey, I'm going to make a movie. I'm going to sell a movie. <laughs> ultimately, a three-hour meeting with one of the nicest people I ever met in Hollywood uh, did not ultimately lead to the book In the Moment Getting Option. It was the first thing I'd ever written and a very early draft of it. Uh, and not in really fully polished form, um, but it was it was it was confidence building at the same time because I said hey here's the first idea I ever came up with creatively. Uh, I didn't grow up as a writer, creative writer. I didn't grow up um, you know as an aspiring novice. I don't have little novels though that I wrote as a kid or little short stories and novellas I wrote. Uh, Leo and Helen was my first <laughs> and um, and the first thing I created. And the fact that it got me to the door of one of the biggest producers in Hollywood um, gave me the confidence to know that I felt pretty pretty good about my ideas um, and want to continue to work on the craft as a writer. And so um, uh, a friend of mine came to me, um, National Football League, the, you know, the, the professional American uh, football out here and uh, American football. And he said uh, he had actually heard the video game concept a couple years prior. And now he was married uh, to a white woman. He has two mixed race kids, two beautiful young mixed race kids. And he said, Hey Cass, why don't we, uh, we thought about doing an uh, animated series and selling it to Netflix, as one does. Uh, if I knew then what I knew now, I may have been a lot more hesitant to start spending significant money on developing an animated series, knowing now, uh, obviously, uh, uh, you know, one does not just walk into Netflix and sell an animated series. Uh, it's, it's, it's certainly, uh, listen, the best people in the world are trying to sell their series to Netflix. Uh, and, and, and so that's, um, like anything else, uh, like this friend who played the NFL, um, the best people in the world played play in the NFL. And so it, it requires the highest degree of skill, talent, and also a little bit of luck as well. And so we, um, from there, we hired an animator, obviously based in the United Kingdom, named Jeremy Nixon. And he, um, you know, produ- we produced, I wrote, produced, and, and directed this, this sizzle reel that, that he animated. Um, and um, that got the attention uh, via Instagram, so social media has been effective for us twice, um, accidentally, really. Instagram um, for our mentor, Bill Schultz, a 30-year animation veteran, um, uh, and, uh, and and obviously Reddit led to, to, to the major Marvel producer. And I got a note from Bill saying, hey, what, who are you guys? What are you guys doing? I would love to learn more about what you're doing. And um, this was about a year ago. And so I had the opportunity to mentor and be mentored by um, one of the top independent uh, animation producers, um, you know, in the United States, um, uh, obviously. And it was extraordinary, you know, it was extraordinary to uh, work with him, to, uh, to be mentored by him, to see him. Uh, he's got a couple projects. He's got one on the air on Netflix. He's got one that is very close to, uh, uh, to, to series Greenlight with, with, uh, with, you know, with another uh, major entity in the United States. And, um, and so I got to see something go from pitch to storyboard to uh, the pilot concept, the pilot pickup to, you know, almost series green light now. Um, and so that was very insightful, very instructive. Then on top of that, I got to see what world-class pitches look like. I got to see people pitches from Academy Award nominated screenwriters and Academy Award winning uh, nominated, you know, animation directors and creators. Um, and so that really showed me what world-class pitches really look like. 
And then, you know, I really said from there and, you know, the opportunity from there was, was really fascinating because you say to yourself, okay, I have this unique background in technology. I've raised some capital before I've built a team before and a, a certainly a team that was fully remote. Um, uh, and, um, you know, why don't we just go build our own animation studio and develop these pitches? Um, you know, I can't, we can't call our own pitches world-class, but that was the goal. That's our aspiration, obviously. Uh, and we would like to think that, you know, people will hopefully judge ours as so. And, um, this is, so the pandemic happens. Um, uh, and obviously the pandemic has been happening since we know since November, December, but in terms of where it really caught the attention of the American public was really in about mid-March after the, the National Basketball Association's uh, uh, canceled or at least postponed its season. And I remember uh, the day after that, I had been meeting with the head of current series of one of the biggest um, animation studios in Hollywood. And uh, you have, you arrive to the place where you're hoping to get, which is, you know, at the seat and sitting across from uh, 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 someone working really high level animation. Uh, and then the world obviously kind of shuts down with the pandemic. And, um, and so, um, and so you really kind of take stock of, of what you're doing and you say to yourself, okay, there's a couple opportunities that we had going forward that are no longer there because of just the direction that the world has happened. That's okay. Now let's reassess. And I really believe, you know, I really believe, uh, Nico, I really believe that, um, you know, two things. I believe there's a lost class of 2020. Um, there is obviously, first and foremost, the people who's, that are families um, of people who've been lost to COVID. Uh, obviously now, you know, the U.S. as well, uh, social unrest and people who've been lost to, to injustice. And those people will never get um, their families back. They'll never get... Um, there's nothing that's going to make 2020 worth it, right? If you've lost a loved one, there is no recompense. There is no, um, you know, there is no, nothing that gives you your, your loved one back. Uh, but beyond that, there's people, the students who've lost graduations. I mean, even a mad, we have a couple of people on our team who worked their whole lives, uh, 22 years to get to this point. Some of them graduating from pre prestige, prestigious schools, and then to not even have a graduation, people have lost weddings. People, and so your heart breaks for that because you're like, wow, the, again, those people are never going to get those experiences back. Um, and, and that's certainly tragic and certainly unfortunate. Um, um, not tragic, but unfortunate for sure. And tragic for those who've lost their loved ones. But I also think positively, there's going to be a new class of 2020 who, um, who uses this time of pandemic and now civil unrest to create new and beautiful things that couldn't have existed, wouldn't have existed in any other format. And certainly animation is something that is in high demand right now, um, if only because it's an art that can be produced remotely, safely, creatively, collaboratively, especially with all the softwares. We're doing this on Zoom. There's obviously Slack. You have Discord, which is popular among artists and animators and gamers. Um, you obviously have Twitter as a great way for people to find mentors. We've talked to more than 100 plus people who are directors, who are heads of stories at uh, all of the major studios, um, storyboard artists, character artists, who are so gracious with their time. People who are saying, hey, we would love to take a look at you. We'd love to give you notes. And so we're in this kind of a once in a century opportunity where people at the top, at every level, at every major animation studio, or more than more willing than ever to listen to new voices, um, especially young and diverse voices, to uh, really kind of be inspired 
uh, and open to hearing new voices. You have artists who are helpful to, to moderating new voices. And, um, and that's been, you know, something that's really, you know, extraordinary. And, uh, you know, on top of that, it's, it's, um, you know, on top of these new voices, uh, Netflix, this is a great example, Netflix virtual speaker series um, is an event that Netflix had. And I said to someone, I said, Netflix may have just won the next generation of animation students because they brought their biggest hitters. They brought uh, Jorge Gutierrez. They bought all of their biggest creators, animators, the biggest talent, and did a virtual uh, series. This was very early into the pandemic. This was about a month after the U.S. had virtually shut down. And, you know, right when college students were going through their finals and kind of their final work weeks, and still, you know, these hungry, talented students still took the time, two, three hours a day, to slit, sit in on these virtual speaker series. Some enterprising individuals from the Netflix virtual speaker series put together a Discord chat um, to really help organize and coordinate everyone who was part of this virtual speaker series. And I just casually threw out to the room and I said, hey guys, there's a hiring Discord channel. And I said, um, I said, hey, we're, we're, um, uh, we're going to, um, uh, 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 we're hiring storyboard artists, character artists, viz dev artists, um, would love to chat. Uh, maybe two or three people might reach out to me. We had about 50 responses. <laughs> I had 50 Zoom interviews in a week. And uh, one, of the, one of the bets that we made um, going into this was, can you go long on ex uh, talent, but short on experience? Um, you know, we had uh, funding available to us some, from some friends and, and family and et cetera. And we said, let's go hire this really interesting team of younger folks, but who are super talented. And we'll bring on mentors and advisors, uh, senior artists, um, you know, from different companies to help kind of advise our and mentor our younger talent. And we, we brought on two or three guest speakers a week from the entertainment industry, et cetera. Uh, our team is majority female. Um, our production manager is female. Um, every artist but one on the team is female as well. Um, and I don't think that's different to this team. I don't think it's, um, I don't think it's different uh, uh, to our, our, the women on our team. I don't think it's unusual for them to be with mostly female artists. I don't think it's different for them to have, you know, a, a black head of the studio or, you know, black founder, et cetera. I think for the younger generation to feel like this is just normal. This is part of the course. This is how their classes look like. Even if I look through the, the people, women and men who reached out to me via Netflix, um, the majority of those were female as well. And so obviously in gaming industry, which is predominantly male, and obviously animation as a whole, which is also predominantly male, I think the, what we've built with Diamond um, is just reflective, not of us even really trying. Of the three projects we're working on, um, Leon Helen is one, features two mixed race protagonists, one of whom is female. Um, the uh, second one is a project called Portal, this near future sci-fi project. By the way, that's a background kind of graphic from that. And that, um, uh, that uh, also a female protagonist. We have uh, a third project we're developing um, uh, called The Chosen One Sidekick. Uh, and that also is uh, a, young, uh, a young minority uh, female protagonist. And that's not even intentional by design. That's just kind of the stories where they took us and lead us. But I think that's the point when you have underrepresented or you have, you know, female writers and creators, they naturally organically tell stories featuring protagonists that look like us without even really trying, right? 
um, it's just kind of, it just happens organically as opposed to some kind of mission of, hey, we've only got to create, you know, diverse characters, et cetera, diverse protagonists. I think just naturally organically female creators um, are going to obviously tell stories of female protagonists, not only, but, but, but there's going to be, they're going to be there in the mix. And then I think it's natural that minority creators are also going to tell stories that feature minorities um, as well. And so we're really excited for what we've built so far. Um, you know, we originally were calling ourselves a pop-up animation studio and that people are like, what does pop-up mean? And I'm like, like a pop-up store. Like, and that's the idea where for us specifically right now, we're focused on narrative pitches to studios, right? Like, um, we're not doing commercials. We're not doing music videos. Um, we're not even actively really seeking out clients really, so to speak. We're really focused as a developmental production studio, which is working, um, in development on, uh, some major animated pitches and then to take them out and pitch them at, you know, at some of these major studios, um, with the goal of one day, uh, maybe if we're fortunate being able to produce them ourselves, um, you know, down the road one day. And so, um, as far as we know, this is, you know, uh, the first or one of the first, uh, black led animation studios in Hollywood. Again, we're not going to live and die on that hill. If, if there's been people out there who've been working that we're, we, we're not aware of, um, certainly not trying to take anything away from them. Just as far as we know, um, you know, uh, we, we believe this is the first black lad animation studio in Hollywood. Um, uh, I think we would be, uh, obviously a small, super, you know, super small studio. Um, one of the few that's majority female as well. Um, and so, um, but we think that's just, when you take younger people and you build a studio, I think that's just the way the world is. I think it just reflects the world. Of our team members, we have one in uh, Buenos Aires, Argentina. Uh, we have one in Ontario, Canada. We actually have one in Pearl River Delta in China. And then we have, um, you know, five who are U.S. based uh, and in Northeastern, between the Midwest and Northeastern and United States. Um, so it's just been really fun. It's been really fun to build a fully remote studio in the midst of the world ending pandemic. Um, not that the pandemic has been fun, obviously, but the idea of building a studio has been really rewarding. And there's this Latin phrase, ex nilo, out of nothing, something out of nothing, obviously animate means to bring life, um, uh, to, to breathe life into something. And so it's really fun as a writer, producer, director. So I don't animate, I write and produce and direct. Um, it's so rewarding because um, it's so rewarding because you really get to take a story that you have and bring it to life. Because ultimately, as a writer, you're not writing for the page. Uh, you have to write for the page to be successful, so to make your thing. But ultimately, you're writing because you want to see your stories told on screen, and um, and that's you know kind of that's that's the goal. DC Cassidy. Three years after it was spun off from its Stockholm-based namesake, Yellowbird UK is preparing for the launch of its first series, Netflix crime drama Young Wallander, based on Henning Mankell's iconic detective. Creative director of Yellowbird UK, Bernard Levin, told Michael Picard all about it and about the company's plans for future development. We have been so lucky. We were so lucky that our timing was sort of really good. Um, we... Basically, we, we finished shooting early December. So we had everything in the can of Young Wallander, you know, before, before Christmas. Um, so by the time the bad news and like sort of the severity of the situation hit us, we were already well into post. 
Um, and obviously we have to then immediately make adjustments in terms of that. But because we're already so, you know, we were so um, international anyway, in the sense that we were, you know, our one director is from Norway, a lot of, you know, the, the editors are in Sweden. Um, I was going back and forth between Stockholm and England. And, you know, and then we had obviously the team in, in London. We were all, so we were already kind of connected digitally. And I think it was all sort of immersed into the production in a much sort of uh, more organic sense than possibly more local productions were. So our transition from, you know, pre-corona to sort of during corona, it actually was fairly smooth. Um, obviously we had to then, you know, there was um, the challenge of, oh my gosh, wait, ADR now with actors in London and we're stuck here and they're there and they can't come into the studio and how, so there were a lot of sort of, you know, quick adjustments, but everybody kind of, you know, realized that this is something we need to deal with. There's no question about it. And we just, you know, we were just, we just, we would just have meetings about like, how, how do we solve this particular problem? How do we solve, but we were so blessed that we weren't, that we were done with production. I mean, I have colleagues, you know, who have to sort of shut down in the middle of it all, which is, you know, devastating for everybody. Um, and then in terms of the rest, um, you know, we are, we have Spotify for Netflix that we're in pre-production, so we're gearing up for that. But that's scheduled to start shooting early next year. So, you know, fingers crossed, everything, if everything goes well, we should be able to sort of keep that scheduled. I think a lot of people have been able to keep going in post-production, which has probably been a saviour yeah. for a lot of series. Yeah. Um, yeah. that we're going to see in the next few months. Can you talk us through just, I guess, some of the practices that you put in place, you know, working in post-production well, to keep the show going? Everything had, so we were, for example, we wouldn't have um, the directors and myself and editors, we would not be in the same, like usually, you know, you you, you go in and you're, you're all sitting and, and working together. So we stopped that. Um, so, which was sort of, and that's part of the delay part you know because then you know the editors would work either remotely from home or they would walk go into the office and 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 sit you know in a room by themselves so social distancing was a huge thing if you didn't need to go in you just stayed home and you you know also all the calls all the meetings everything was sort of zoom and and um so um and then we would just get links you know we'd get links we'd watch with feedback, so there was like a lot of, and obviously that's more time consuming, but I mean, there was never a question about that. Same thing with ADR, only, you know, one one actor at a time, um, making sure that nobody would even meet in the corridor, you know what I mean? Like, so we would schedule them with like half hour um, sections in between and only the, the, um, the recording, uh, you know, the sound editor and the, um, so everybody else remote. Um, the directors would call in remotely to give notes, etc. So, um, so those were sort of some of the you know things we had to do. Same thing, like we haven't had any big screenings, anything. So everything, everybody watches everything at their home digitally, you know, like with via links and and feedback like that. So post Corona, I think that part of it I probably wouldn't keep doing that way because I do believe in the in that sort of the creative conversation that happens in the room. 
but we have learned that there is a lot of it we can do actually remotely and it and it it's it's fine it's more than fine so um so i think we're going to have see a little bit of changes you know like moving forward that i think are going to be great not the least for the environment if we don't have to keep flying back and forth and you know unnecessarily and if we can sort of you know do more of this i think it's just great so um yeah and you, you know no no big obviously no you know cast and crew screening <laughs> no no big party to sort of you know celebrate which is you know a little sad but again nothing in this sort of in the course of the big picture so definitely yeah and and so how has work at yellowbird kind of continued in terms of i guess development have you had to change those practices and and things that you'll continue doing well, now? Yeah, the thing is, since we sort of, again, because, you know, we have the Yellowbird Sweden connection, but we're in London and I'm, I go back and forth between Stockholm and, and London. And because our shows usually always shoot elsewhere, I mean, we're, you know, we were, um, you know, we were in Lithuania shooting Young Wallander. The one pri prior to that that I did was we were in Budapest mostly. So it's, so we were, and because we have to keep, you know, sort of talking to our colleagues in the US and, you know, in Sweden, we are pretty, I mean, we were pretty set to, to do it remotely. Like we have, we had already all these practices in, in place for, you know, like, you know, twice a week uh, meetings, you know, phone calls and, and sort of updates and what have you. And there's, I mean, I'm like the, you know, everybody makes fun of me, but I usually don't like to talk on the phone. So I'm like the queen of emails, but also WhatsApp. Like we have a, we have a special WhatsApp group for every project. So you're just so, and like everybody. So we're kind of, we realized that, wow, you know, this is, I mean, it's not that big of a difference. Of course, I miss being in London and I miss meeting people and, you know, talking to writers in the room. There's no question about that, but, but it's, it's been okay. And, because we had finished Young Wallander, we were in post and were gearing up for Spotify. We had that, in fact, this would have been our, pretty much our job as it is right now, that we would have been developing and writing, you know, all the, all the other great stuff that we're, we have in the pipeline. But what's been sort of a positive-ish effect of, of Corona is that a lot of, because a lot of the productions couldn't move forward, we had writers who were suddenly available to us and really sort of ready to work on the, the projects. So we've, I mean, we've probably made a little bit more progress in terms of our development and where we are than we would have been normally. So we're going to have a lot of great stuff to pitch, but then, you know, so is everybody else. <laughs> so that's going to be interesting. <laughs> but um, so, so it hasn't really affected us, but again, the, the biggest, I think challenge is that our, our you know industry like our our, our line of, of business it requires um personal connections you know you you it's it's a very even though producing can be sort of you know um about numbers and, and budgets and whatever it is also you know very creative and that is i think it's difficult in the long run to keep doing it this way like you have to actually sit in the room with people so i'm hoping you know i'm hoping come fall we're going to be able to do that but, yeah. yeah yeah no definitely i mean you know we've you know we've seen guidelines published in the uk about getting back to work and and sweden is obviously a bit a bit ahead of that with productions kind of continuing right. in the majority through the 
the last few months? I mean, you know, in terms of getting back to work and getting on set, I mean, what do you see um, as the future being, you know, particularly for shows like Young Wallander, where you're talking about an international cast filming in Lithuania? I mean, are yeah. those shows going to be just put on ice for a while or do you see a way to get those back? Right. I mean, that's so the way um, a Young Wallander works is we usually we have the, the key um, key creatives, you know, um, the heads of departments are usually from, you know, the UK. Um, and in this case, some from the, you know, our directors were from Sweden and Norway. And there was a reason for that because we wanted to kind of marry the Scandinavian with the international. Um, but then the rest of the crew, you know, were Lithuanian locals. And, and that's the great thing about these countries is that there's enormous talent, you know, um, and they're, they're incredibly um, diligent and, and hardworking and, and everybody speaks English. So, um, so we, I think what's going to happen is we're still going to be able to you know, have productions elsewhere, but I think that we are not going to travel as much back and forth between the countries that one has to kind of be a little mindful of, is it really necessary or do we now sort of go and stay where we are or like, you know, and try to plan the, the productions, which, you know, which requires a, even more now from both producers, but also, you know, financiers and, and, and broadcasters, that there's a, a, an understanding and, and a willingness, a collaboration um, as to things may take a little longer and, thing, and, and shows are probably going to cost a little bit more because we're going to have to, you know, we're going to have to air it a little bit. I mean, everything we're going to be mindful of. And, and also, very and this is super strict now and i think we're gonna have to do it this way for a while that if if you have even the slightest bit of cold you stay home and what does that mean you know if it's your main actor then what does it mean for production but i mean but those things you can't really i mean that's not negotiable at this point i feel like we're we're in a reality where if that's the case, that's the case, then that person stays away. And then you have to sort of then try to, you know, so we have to both be incredibly, I think, well organized and flexible. So you have to, you know, you have to have, normally you'll have a plan A and B and C perhaps, but now maybe you have to have, you know, plan A, B, C, D, E, F, I don't know what, but like, so everybody needs to be able to kind of adjust and schedules. But again, um, I feel I'm not worried because I feel like everybody's in it for, for the same, you know, everybody has sort of the same approach to it and everybody, I feel like there's going to be, I mean, it's not us wanting something and then the them. It's like, we're all trying to make sure that we're, we're going to be able to work, but that it's going to be safe. Um, maybe we're going to be on stages more where there, you know, obviously everything is much more, you know, controllable. So yeah, I think it's gonna be, we're gonna see changes. But I feel also like those changes, I mean, that's pretty much how it should be anyway. So we're, you know, hopefully it's something really, you know, good is gonna come out of this. Cool, and, and has, um, I guess, recent events, you know, talking about, you know, you're developing a lot at the moment, has, that, has this changed the kind of material developing or, um, you know, how the kind of stories that you think we'll want to watch in the next couple of years? 
You know, that's a really interesting question. I think there is like a division within the community. I think there are those who kind of believe that, yeah, we have to sort of, we have to deal with this and we have to incorporate it and we have to, you know, there's, you can't just sort of not, you can't just continue as is. But, you know, drama is interesting. It's, it's sort of, it's what you want to do. Is it, is it, are you sort of, are you, is it a commentary on what's happening right now or is it escape? you know so if you're escaping from reality then maybe you're not going to be handling you know dealing with corona a lot but at the same time can you i don't know can we for our projects right now it doesn't really make a huge difference because you know we're i mean we're sort of very genre specific and we're, we're we've been developing for a while but it's going to be interesting in sort of in you know choosing new projects when you new ideas come if, if that's going to be, you know, if all of a sudden there's going to be more of that sort of outbreak kind of, you know, dystopian stories circulating, or is it going to be that we're just going to be like, no, we just want to forget all about it. Now we want to have fun and we want to escape. So, um, so at the moment, I'm not seeing a lot of, I mean, I know that, you know, people sort of the um, non-scripted has sort of, you know, handled it much sort of more immediately but drama you know scripted shows I mean it takes a, a long time for us to develop them so we're not so far we haven't really embraced the corona and I don't even know how we would um how we would go about doing it but I mean certainly and I don't know in a year if it's still this much you know if it's affecting everybody this much so it's a good question yeah, I, I guess it might be something more for the uh, for the soaps to consider as to whether you know yeah, people are going to be I, social distancing or or whether you know you'll be getting your um, Spotify scripts coming through in the next six months and and suddenly you know someone will just mention Corona or you know right. there, there might be fewer intimate scenes I guess or or something yeah. you know, just something yeah. that reflects the way we will be living then right but you know it, we're, we were talking about that and our shows are usually you know, I mean, because we're in the in the crime genre a lot or, you know, political thrillers or what have you, it's not like you don't have that many intimate scenes, unfortunately, you know, or like everybody. So the closest you get to somebody is when, you know, when you discover a body that's already. So, so um, no, joking aside, though, I think, yeah, I think we're going to, I think we're probably going to have to sort of, um, you can't really totally ignore it, but I don't know that we're going to be developing anything about Corona or something that has it as sort of a main, you know, um, main storyline. I, I don't see us doing it, but I'm sure there's going to be, you know, I mean, there are probably sort of great shows to, I mean, because I mean, it, it is affecting, you know, the world. So it, so art will deal with it. You know, people will have to sort of, because that's how we move on, right? We, you have to sort of, you have to handle it and you have to deal with it and you have to sort of, you know, express your feelings about it and then sort of that's how you kind of work through it and and i mean can you just tell us a bit more then about the the spotify project and and kind of how you've been developing that story for for netflix i have you know um unfortunately i can't tell you too much about it but the thing with spotify is that you know what's i think what really kind of engaged us and, and what i'm excited about is not the the obvious story sort of the the making of spotify or you know what it is today because everybody knows that and it isn't you know it, it it's it's amazing really what's been accomplished but it's kind of the story um 
of these young, you know, kids in, in Sweden who just have this insane dream where in a time where sort of they realize that everything is about to change, but the rest of the world and the older generations have no clue. And they also have, even though this is, this is sort of being said over and over, some, you know, internet is coming and huge thing. I mean, this, this is going to change the world. I don't think, you know, the older generation and the establishment and sort of the institutions, I don't think they realized what actually this meant. But so to have this group of young kids who just come up with an idea where everybody tells them it's impossible and they just sort of keep going and they do it. And so to me, it's literally, it's like the most inspirational story. And I think, so hopefully post Corona times, it's going to be, um, it's going to sort of give a sense of, you know, we're fine. And, you know, and, and inspirational stories are everywhere all the time. So it's like, it's to, it's kind of to give it, it's like a snapshot of that time of, you know, this awe and wonder of like this internet thing that was about to happen. And, 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 you know, because it's like sitting now knowing how it's changed the world. It's amazing to think that this wasn't always the case. I mean, when we do research, you, I it like, it feels like it's just yesterday, but I'm like, wait, what? When we, there were no iPhones, there were no smartphones. Do you know what I mean? It's like they had just, I think the, the first iPhone sort of came out like a year after they decided they were going to do this. And, you know, and computers like laptops. I mean, it's just, it's an amazing time just to go back to that time and to be like, wait, what? I think it's going to be, you know, for the younger generation, it's just going to be mind blowing. It sounds yeah. like a show that's going to make me feel horribly old when uh, my my youth is described as a period drama of the, you know the nineties or, or you know what that's what we're saying. that's <laughs> yes yes that's that it is now it's called a period a period piece and I just remember it as if you know it was yesterday it's horrible. Bernard Levin, that's all for today. We'll be back next week with another series of interviews from around the TV world. My name's David Jenkinson. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.